Blog Talk Radio. Hello? Welcome to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network, a station dedicated to the concept that all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. Join Reverend Terry Power HP, Robin McKean, and all the hosts for programming covering a wide range of spiritual topics right here on Blog Talk Radio. This is Hercules Invictus, and I'm honored to announce the AWA Report with Dan Uloa. Greetings and welcome, Dan. How are you? I'm good, Hercules. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. I'm looking forward to tonight's show and hearing all the wonderful things that are unfolding with the AWA. Oh, yeah, I'm glad. That, uh, yeah, you're ready for it. Yeah, you know, we've been pretty uh, busy uh, recently. But, you know, the news has been especially interesting this week uh, with the Wayfair walkouts, actually. Yes. Uh, can you elaborate on that? Because that, that is very interesting. Yeah, so for those who don't know, Wayfair is a company, uh, an online company that sells furniture, and it seems they had a contract with ICE, the government organization that has these camps at the border that's detaining uh, migrant children in really horrible conditions. Uh, and this is a really big issue. You know, like, this yeah. is not, like, these children are being separated from their parents, and they're basically being held in camps that have been called concentration camps because of how poor the conditions are. So, the workers at Wayfair were enraged that their company was doing business with ICE, so they demanded uh, in the letter that uh, Wayfair stop, and the management at Wayfair said no, so the employees at the headquarters in Boston walked out yesterday and staged a very large demonstration, so it was really great to see that. Yes, it is. That is awesome. Yes, we're really hoping, you know, that this leads to similar practices being taken, you know, at other companies, for example. So it's similar to what was done uh, last year by workers at Google who wa- walked out uh, because they were enraged at some of Google's policies regarding uh, the Department of Defense and the data that Google owns. 
you know, that's really important now in this day and age, electronic data and whatnot. But it's really interesting, actually, in this walkout as well, because these people aren't really walking out for something that immediately benefits them. Now, usually when you have a walkout or a strike in a traditional labor dispute, you know, people want, for example, better working conditions, better health care. They don't want to be micromanaged, you know, better working conditions, safer conditions, things of that nature. So it's really interesting in that fashion as well. That is very interesting. And it seems like people are suddenly waking up, which is a good thing, too. I was very concerned uh, because of all the inertia uh, that seemed to have gripped the nation. But now people are speaking out and they're, they're waking up. So this is a very good thing and very encouraging. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's really interesting that way when you can see something where you have a period of malaise almost and then somehow, you know, it groans and grinds to a point and then there's a spark and suddenly there's a massive uproar. And it seems like this uproar is spreading throughout the nation uh, as well. Uh, so it's not just isolated uh, pockets that you rarely hear about. These things are happening increasingly uh, more and more, and people are using more extreme language uh, to express themselves. Uh, um, I know there's been a lot of uh, fire for people calling these camps concentration camps, uh, but indeed that is what they seem to be. Uh, and uh, it's about time we stopped whitewashing the fact and taking it as a wake-up call that this is happening in our country at this particular time. And the people ask themselves, what would they have done uh, during the rise of Hitler? Um, this is a good time to ask yourself, what are you doing now? Uh, not that this is the rise of Hitler, but we're seeing a lot of the same currents manifesting themselves. So what are we doing about it now? How are we responding now? This is our time, and this is our wake-up call. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Very important that way. You know, I'm Jewish myself, so, you know, like, I understand, you know, why some people might be concerned, but these people really are being held, like, in horrible conditions. You know, they were saying, for example, that one Department of Justice lawyer says, oh, yeah, it's okay that kids should sleep on concrete. Yeah, they can do that. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. And it's like, holy hell, man. Right. If you think it's okay, why not make your children sleep on concrete and live in cages and see uh, how okay that actually is? Yeah, so it's really horrible that way. So we'll see where the momentum goes with that. But, you know, here, you know, AWA, you know, we're trying what we can uh, to help workers in a more immediate sense by, you know, building our organization and reaching out to people, you know. A lot of workers... You know, people are working from home, they're working remotely, or they're not really, you know, they're not really forming the common bonds, the connections with the workers that they did in the past. So, you know, we're looking at different ways of organizing people. So, you know, right now we're trying to figure out, like, a really great meme that could, that could really catch fire, for example, and, you know, help spread awareness. Well, the AWA is certainly spreading awareness about the W-2-1099 um, uh, controversy or uh, issues uh, that arise from that type of uh, circumstance. Um, 
I see the state of New Jersey taking a very active role uh, recently in uh, basically trying to remedy that situation. But the remedies are kind of extreme. And actually, uh, although some of them are creating good opportunities for workers, other uh, actions that they're taking are killing small businesses. So it's been a very mixed bag uh, in terms of that particular issue. Yeah, you know, it's difficult that way. This is an issue that does seem to be uh, unprecedented in labor law on some level, which has not really progressed very much uh, in the last 20 years in many ways. And, you know, it's really difficult that way when you don't really understand like, the nature of these workers, when it is workers in very different situations, for example, that way. And, you know, like ideally, you know, we could help both the worker and the small businessmen. You know, it would be a win-win situation, but unfortunately that's not always the case. No, it isn't. I'll, I'll give an example. Um, in building my own enrichment uh, business, uh, I took uh, opportunities that were offered by other enrichment businesses. In one of them, I was hired as an employee, and in the other one, I was hired as an independent contractor. So I personally preferred being an independent contractor uh, because this helped me build my business. Uh, and the person who was hiring me was very open with everything, including the 1099 versus uh, W-2. Uh, what happened was uh, because of somebody that he subcontracted business with, not something that he was doing, he was forced to hire everybody as an employee. So that did not serve my purposes <laughs> because of what I wanted to do. Uh, so I had to draw back my participation because I, I don't want to be an employee. I want to build my business. So uh, being an employee doesn't help me at all. Uh, so that affected me adversely, even though the state of New Jersey's heart was in the right place and they did take action. They, they penalized a small business person uh, for conducting his business in an open and very honest manner. So I don't think that was the original intent, but that was uh, the result of their recent actions. And uh, it affected me uh, um, as an independent contractor and as a local uh, business owner as well. Yeah, you know, it's unfortunate that way. There are going there to be a few situations like that, you know. The idea is that there is like a strict criteria, for example, that you can tell one way or another, for example, if somebody is a small businessman or an independent contractor or not. And like an independent contractor has the means to obtain more business. One. Right. Two, they're not being micromanaged in that way. And there is a third one. Um Oh, yes. What they do is not central to the function of the business, actually. So that that's like a big one. So actually, uh, I was talking to somebody who's uh, has some experience researching the law, and there might be an interesting legal president, president we can use there in terms of fighting this. Because this is especially bad when you have Uber drivers or being called independent contractors, and what they do is absolutely central to the business. Of course. So, so that that's the question. So, if you're then like a tutor 
for a tutoring company or like a guy or like a similar caregiver um, educator for an education company, that's a little difficult then in your situation if I do understand it. Right. Uh, basically, um, uh, again, it's like being an independent anything. You know, it's uh, I teach. And uh, I teach a wide variety of things. I, I Last time I counted how many different things I could teach off the top of my head with uh, a little preparation is over 50 topics. <laughs> so I don't mind teaching for other uh, people. Uh, I have the things that I focus on when I teach, which are primarily Greek mythology and Greek philosophy and, uh, you know, topics like that. Those are my passion and that's what I built my business around. But I have teaching skills. I've taught in college. I've taught in after-school programs. I've taught in a wide variety of educational uh, settings for people of all ages. I've taught in places where uh, people have disabilities and so forth. So uh, it's a skill I can bend out um, and also do my own thing for my own company, which is basically mythologically based. Um, but, uh, again, the... the I can understand why the state of New Jersey is taking these actions and their intention is in the right place, uh, but I believe that they're attacking the wrong people because these people are providing opportunities for places uh, uh, and people like me, um, and uh, now all of a sudden they're making it difficult to be an independent uh, uh, contractor or to be a vendor uh, for your skill set if you don't want to work for anybody in particular. Yeah, you know, these are the questions that we're going to have to deal with, you know, as a society, you know, as we go forward, you know, in the gig economy, it seems we're going one way or another. And you know, there what, is, it is difficult, you know, for people, you know, people do enjoy the independence, you know, the people who are able to make it at the top rung of the gig economy, you know, they are the ones with good clients, they're able to set their own hours, they're able to negotiate as a small businessman does. With another small businessman, not as an employee is ordered around by an employer as one does in a traditional business setting. So that's a difficult point. Oh, it is a difficult point. And uh, uh, for someone like me who's been around the block for decades, uh, and I've had uh, my own focus on PBS uh, with the Department of Labor in New Jersey and with the Department of Employment in uh, New York, and uh, um, I've uh, you know, been on JobCast, which was an official uh, DOL uh, um, public broadcasting uh, project here in New Jersey. Um, I don't want to be an employee. Um, I had to be an employee because of the changes in the economy until I figure out what I would like to and what um, I can do. Um, but uh, um, I've done that and been there for many decades. So this is a new chapter in my life. Um, and uh, um, it, it's becoming increasingly more difficult uh, to establish the type of uh, niche. Um, I believe that the gig economy is a good thing um, if you understand it and if you can make use of it uh, because it gives you freedom that you don't have as an employee of a company. Uh, and even though I'll accept employment gigs, um, because that's the system they have uh, to pay me for my services, I, I certainly don't think of myself as, as an employee anymore. 
And so it's very challenging. And uh, in a way, uh, like all challenges, it is good because it stretches my thinking. It forces me to think new thoughts and to try new things. Uh, but again, part of me, it's like I'm 60. I really don't want to be more creative than I already am because I'm phenomenally creative. And uh, because you bend your writing, like I bend my uh, teaching, uh, I'm sure you're confronting a lot of the same challenges yourself. Yeah, you know, so I myself, you know, I'm in the gig economy, you know, and learning like the nature of how to do this and how to get to the top of it. And it is quite a learning process for me. You know, I didn't expect initially to try to be like a small businessman. You know, that seemed to be somebody who's in tech or something, you know, but it's for everybody. And because there are great advantages to it, there is this class of people who are making good money, who are able to like work remotely, travel, work from South America, Asia, and still make good money, for example. But they're able to do it, one, because they understand what they're doing. And they're able, and because they understand what they're doing, they're able to educate themselves on how to market themselves as small business people. They're able to set themselves up and properly with the small business and network to get their proper counsel from a lawyer, perhaps, an accountant especially, and to, you know, meet people in the field and negotiate subsequently with a potential client as a small businessman who can subsequently command a good rate. That's the catch. If you're able to get a good rate, if you're able to make a good deal, then it's great. Then you're great and you're at the top of the economy. But a lot of these companies are take it or leave it, here's the money, that's it. So that's a difficult point. When somebody doesn't respect the work you do and it says something like that or they similarly don't value it and it's very difficult that way and because there's so many opportunities like that that subsequently masquerade themselves as these great opportunities to help you be your own business and be your own boss and be free but you're not going to you can't be that free with so little money not in this day and age uh, correct. Um, it has been a remarkable journey with uh, this gig economy. I remember the last time I um, focused primarily on being an employee, uh, I was working for a, a community college in Pennsylvania. And when I was initially hired, it was for a family literacy program and then for a workforce development program. Uh, and uh, that was great, and I got uh, um, independent work working for the county and uh, in other institutions uh, where I focused on, you know, employability and issues related to employability and uh, uh, so forth. And that was the last time that uh, I, I basically took that particular track, and I was moving already towards uh, – um, being an independent contractor and being a small uh, business owner. Uh, but since those days, uh, it's become increasingly more difficult uh, to justify being an employee. Uh, like, remember, during my last days as an employee, I was teaching classes at a physical location, and then I was also um, connected by computer to five other locations throughout the state of Pennsylvania where there were classes sitting there watching a TV 
and I would have to watch the monitor for questions that they had and answer their questions. So I was actually teaching five classes simultaneously. And I felt that that was wrong because, uh, again, they were hiring me to do it, not paying me any extra money. And normally they would have had to pay four other teachers uh, to teach uh, this material. So uh, it, it's very disturbing how that started to go. And that's what got me thinking that uh, in addition to the other business ideas that I had that I actualized, like at the time we owned a uh, collectibles uh, store and uh, we had all sorts of workshops and activities uh, uh, related to the collectibles and metaphysical topics uh, in our Barbarian Bazaar. That's what we called it at the time. <laughs> uh, it nice. seemed uh, just, uh, you know, basically it seemed wrong to have one person teaching six classes uh, simultaneously uh, without any extra remuneration and that four or five other people uh, lost the job because I was sitting there teaching it uh, in person and with a computer. Yeah, that is really bad that way when you have that type of situation. That's the problem. It's like we have the gig economy on the one side where we have people scrambling to try to beat small business people, a small class that's greatly successful. And on the other side, we have a lot of jobs where you're being squeezed. You know, you're right. being micromanaged. You're being given way too much. You're given, be given the tasks of two people, and you're made to feel bad if you're not working hard enough, if you're not, like, excelling so greatly. And this actually, this actually brings me to a great topic, because this is what I'm actually writing a book about, like, how all these awesome. issues are connected. Because, like, you're saying you're working for, what, like, a public program teaching, and they probably didn't want, like, to fire those people, but they had to. Because of budgetary constraints. Now, right. why are there budgetary constraints? Because a small class of wealthy individuals do not want to pay taxes. And they're able to manipulate the system towards that end. And, you know, they have a company, and they'll squeeze that company for profit at the expense of the consumer, and at the expense of the worker, and at the expense of the taxpayer quite often. Right. Because then we don't really have a progressive tax system either. So, you know, I'm writing a book here, you know, showing how all these issues are connected. You know, I was just at the pharmacy the other week, and here I was, you know, I'm waiting for my prescription, and a guy starts yelling at a clerk. Now, usually when you're yelling at a clerk, maybe one in ten times it's the clerk's fault. You know, somebody could be new. Or maybe they're just overworked because, you know, they're working too much because they need to pay the bills because they're not right. really making good money. Or their manager is similarly stretched and really couldn't train them. Or there's a corporate policy that's really designed to squeeze the consumer, especially at a pharmacy where the drugs are astronomically high. And right. it's been, there's a problem with insurance. It can be really difficult, especially if you really need that drug. So, all these issues are connected. Uh, we need to show people that they're connected. So, I'm writing a book towards that end. With that is awesome. you know, part of that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so show, writing about these experiences that I've had, you know, dealing with the economy, you know, my 
experiences in advocacy as well, you know, fighting for health care reform, fighting for 15 an hour as well. And then, you know, here, this analysis of these issues. So we'll see where it goes. Knock on wood, it'll go well. Uh, Yes, knock on wood, it will go well. And I will definitely help you promote this book in any way that I possibly uh, can, uh, because that information does need to uh, get uh, out there. And uh, times are changing. And uh, what I found in my uh, work with the Crestville Public Library, uh, different things at different times, uh, was that a lot of people who had secure professions uh, that they had spent decades achieving are now finding themselves out of uh, work. And uh, because the type of work that they're, they've been trained to do and that they dedicate themselves toward mastering is no longer available, uh, they're having to take whatever you know, positions are available. And often those are in retail or in food service or in security uh, until they find something uh, more suited because they can't not work. And I certainly understand that in my own journey uh, in dealing with this uh, um, challenge, uh, I've been there myself. And uh, that was a very eye-opening experience because I was doing things I haven't done since I was a teenager, uh, essentially, before I even had a profession. Uh, So I can sympathize with all the people who have to take that step Uh, But it's very demeaning, and it really doesn't lead anywhere. So you have to give that up at a certain point and think of something uh, um, else. So the AWA is doing an awesome thing uh, by focusing on the needs of people in the gig economy. And uh, you're a very bright uh, and thoughtful individual. You're very dedicated to uh, humanity uh, and to people achieving a state of uh, independence uh, within whatever economy presents itself. So I'm very honored to be part of uh, the AWA's mission. Oh, well, thank you, Hercule. You always have very kind words that way. I'm embarrassed now. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you guys are awesome, and you also managed to attract very uh, interesting uh, uh, people who are awesome in and of themselves and have a diverse background. And uh, they range from young people to older people, uh, people who were uh, American to people who are uh, transplants from other uh, cultures, uh, people who were organizers in uh, unions, the people who are dedicated to their careers. So the AWA Um, actually encompasses and represents a wide variety of perspectives. And one of the things I like about the AWA is that uh, it's not trying to perpetuate the us against them uh, mentality that is preventing us uh, currently from accomplishing anything. Uh, It's looking to find ways of working with people in different uh, types of situations to solve actual problems rather than take uh, certain stances. And that is awesome. Uh, And uh, I'm, you know, again, I like interacting with you guys for that reason above all else. Oh, yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, so we do really appreciate, you know, the idea of e pluribus unum, you know, that corny phrase that they put on 
coins and whatnot, you know, out of many one, because we do appreciate you know, people's backgrounds, because these issues don't just affect writers like me. They don't just affect educators. They don't just affect dietitians that we have. You know, it's not just labor organizers who understand these issues. It's everybody from many walks of life that are really understanding these issues. You know, because, you know, this force, you know, I call it hypercapitalism in the book to distinguish, you know, how different it is now and how rapacious the system has almost become. Now, it's affecting all these professions. You know, people used to think, oh, no, I have my degree from college. I went to college. I work hard. I'm here in my office. I'm all right. But they're not all right anymore. No, you're not. not I yeah, so that's uh, on TV. Uh, we always do that. Computers in uh, in walls, and uh, basically reality changed, and uh, reality changed for everybody I know, and uh, um, that is the reality. So um, the prospect of uh, feeling safe and secure uh, in our information age is no longer a luxury that uh, we can rest upon. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. In a way, this technology is very awesome, and it connects things in uh, unique ways and, and allows for a lot of uh, uh, progress and a lot of prosperity that we weren't open to before. Uh, but in some ways, it's very exclusionary, and it uh, prevents people from uh, establishing a place in the world like they were able to do before. There's no local anymore. So uh, whatever greatness you might have attained locally uh, under a less connected system, now you're comparing yourself to people throughout the planet in seconds. Uh, So even if you shine, it's becoming less difficult to shine. Yeah, that is like the issue. You know, we are dealing with a very dynamic system that way. So it does give us hope in that fashion, actually. You know, things aren't going to stay the same. As no. they are now, so it, things can change, you know, for the better, for example. Right. And you know that's what we are working towards right now. And on that note, uh, we finish another chapter in the AWA report with Daniel Loa, uh, and we're going to take a short break, and then we'll be back with Common Bonds. Our host will be Daniel Loa, and our guest will be Lawrence. And I'm greatly looking forward to it. Thank you very much, Stan. I greatly enjoyed this half an hour. Oh, so did I, Hercules. Thank you.
One thing evolved. 
Greetings and welcome back to the Elysium Project. I'm Hercules Invictus, and our next segment is Common Bonds, hosted by Dan Loa. Our guest today is Lawrence Ham. Greetings and welcome to the Elysium Project. Good evening. How are you? Doing awesome. Um, I spread the scepter to uh, Daniel Little, who will now interview for the show. Uh, thank you, Hercules. Yeah, I'm happy to have uh, Larry Ham here on uh, our Common Bond segment. He is the chairman of People's Organization for Progress, POP, a civil rights organization based out of Newark, New Jersey, that has been at the uh, forefront of fighting for rights for men and women on issues of civil rights, on economic justice as well. That's why I was happy to have Larry on our podcast tonight. So, Larry, tell us about yourself then. Uh, About myself? (laughs) Well, uh, I was raised in North New Jersey. I'm a product of... uh, Newark Public Schools. I graduated from Arts High School in Newark. Um, I'm trying to... I I didn't come out of a political family. I came out of a pretty um, regular uh, working family. My mother was a seamstress. My father was a truck driver, but he passed away when I was four. and uh, I was... um, uh, in part raised by my grandparents and my mother. Um, I think my real, my first express, expressly political episode in my life when, was when I was a freshman at Arts High School. Um, they had a student orientation uh, the first week of school, and, you know, that's when the faculty and staff tell you all about the school, and they had a young fellow there uh, who was president of the student government, and they wanted him to talk about the student government. This was in this was in the fall of 1967, uh, and he was supposed to talk about the student government, and he started talking about the war in Vietnam. Now, I was only 13 years old at the time. I didn't know a damn thing about Vietnam. I did know something about race because the rebellion in Newark, I lived in the middle of it uh, when it erupted uh, in 1967. So I knew a little bit about race, but I didn't know anything about Vietnam. So the student government president at Arts High School started talking about Vietnam, and the principal stood up and told him to only talk about the student government, and he continued to talk about the war (laughs) in Vietnam. And the principal and the student government president got into a fight on the stage in front of the (laughs) freshmen the first week of school at Hardside School. And that made me want to join the student council. (laughs) And eventually I became... um, Myself, I became a student government president at Arts High School. It was called mayor, uh, like the mayor of the city or the mayor of the school. And in March of 1971, I engaged in my first uh, overtly political 
uh, collective action when I let them walk out of all the students at Arts High School and we marched down to the Gateway Hotel, the Hilton Gateway, still there across the street from Penn Station. And uh, we took over the sixth and seventh floors of the Gateway Hotel uh, to demand uh, improvements in education. And uh, after that, a couple of months after that, I was appointed at the age of 17 to the Newark Board of Education, which I think which I think I still hold the title as the youngest full voting school board member in the history of the United States. I was 17 when I was appointed to the school board, not as a student representative, but as one of the nine voting board members. And I served a three-year term, and then I went to Princeton University, where I majored in politics, but I was a leader of the anti-apartheid movement at Princeton University. And in 1978, we took over Nassau Hall for three days to demand that Princeton divest its holdings and businesses and companies uh, that were supporting the apartheid regime. The university did partially divest, didn't fully, but it did something. And um, in 1980, I left Princeton. I returned to Newark, New Jersey. Uh, One of the first things I did was form a fuel oil cooperative, the People's Energy Cooperative, organized 400 families to purchase their fuel oil collectively as opposed to individuals and thereby avail themselves of discounts on fuel oil and on service contracts. And then about a year after that, I organized in 1983, uh, was one of the nine founding members of the People's Organization for Progress. So POP will be 36 years old in August of uh, of this year. And um, uh, for the last 36 years, I've been fighting on a, a variety of issues dealing with uh, uh, economic justice, racial justice, social justice, and peace and anti-war activities. And um, just this past uh, Saturday, the last, the most recent action of POP was our annual march for reparations for African Americans, for restitution for the labor that was stolen for 250 years, for the 250 years that chattel slavery existed in this country, and for the damage that was done by the near reenslavement of Black people under the Jim Crow apartheid system and under the racist segregation system and and damage that is still being done today by the criminal justice system and the system of mass incarceration in this country. So that's a little bit about me. That is quite impressive there, Don. I did not realize until by like the age of 22, you led like two major marches then. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's (laughs) funny because... uh, uh, I led a, a sit-in at 17, and then uh, led a sit-in when I was at college, and then I led a sit-in. Believe it or not, um, this was way before 9/11, because you can't even get into the federal building now. But um, I think around 1987, I led a sit-in at the federal building in Newark because remember apartheid hadn't been overthrown Nelson Mandela was still in jail in 1987 and yeah. um, I was uh, uh, the 
president of the New Jersey chapter of the Rainbow Coalition, and we let us sit in at the federal building, believe it or not. You can't even get in there, get through security now without taking all your, almost all your clothes off. But um, about <laughs> 75 of us got in there in 87 and sat into the man that the U.S. Uh, disengaged from its support for the apartheid regime in South Africa at that time. And uh, uh, we, we, we didn't actually go to jail, but we did go on trial as a result of that sit-in. And uh, we were found guilty, <laughs> and we had to pay some fines, but none of us, none of us actually ended up going to jail. Well, that's good. Then I guess he had a good lawyer then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I have been to jail. I participated in um, uh, the first year I was at Princeton. I actually came back home after the first semester on the on the, the break, the winter break, to actually support uh, a housing struggle that was going on in Newark. And um, we raised so much sand at the city council meeting that I was actually arrested at the city council meeting and put in <laughs> jail, the Newark city jail, and had to go on trial, you know, and was found not guilty. The judge said that my constitutional rights were violated, you know. So I have been, I have been arrested, and I have been in jail. Well, this is for a good cause and a great tradition of civil disobedience. Mm-hmm. That is, and then more oh, recently, interesting. And then, uh, mm-hmm. and then more recently. It's not a major thing, but more recently, I actually had to go to court in Montclair because every year in Montclair they have a Fourth of July parade. So, so when POP marches in the parade, instead of um, uh, singing the Star Spangled Banner, we march and you know whatever the cause is for that year, end the war in Iraq or out of Afghanistan or. Trump must go. I have my bullhorn. And one year, the police actually <laughs> tried to stop me from using the bullhorn. I had to go to court. I had to go to court. <laughs> and, uh, you know, again, the judge threw out the charges. They had charged me with disturbing the peace or something. And uh, I actually went on trial there, but the judge threw the charges out. So in that case, I didn't have to go to jail. Well, I'm glad, uh, glad for that, then. It's interesting, Then I guess you really have been fighting for a whole range of causes then from civil rights, you know, apartheid. You know, it's so interesting now looking back on it, how, like, large, you know, that fight was and how, like, overreaching it was that oh, yeah. then every tactic possible had to be used because it was so, so endeviled and so embodied in that society. Yeah. For example, that yes, like everybody that was, that, in hmm? yeah, I, I I'm agreeing with you, and I was saying yes that the the anti-apartheid struggle was probably one of the best fights that I was ever engaged in because it in fact that struggle was able to bring so many different groups of people together. You know, it wasn't just black people fighting for other black people in South Africa. It was really, to be truthful, I mean, of course, black people were at the center of it, but 
you know, it was a multiracial struggle, you know, um, and and even at Princeton, you know, one one of the reasons our our movement was successful at Princeton was because, in fact, we had built a broad multiracial coalition to support apartheid. Like, you know, when we first started protesting, you know, people would curse at us and throw their sodas on us, you know, like fountain sodas in the cup. We'd be outside protesting, and when they walk by, they throw stuff, throw garbage at us and stuff. Mm. But by the time we met, oh, yeah, and call us niggas and all kind of stuff like that. Hey. This is at Princeton. Yeah. And, but by the time we made it to our senior year in 78, they did a poll, and 55% of the students supported, you know, the struggle against apartheid, supported divestment. But that was because we had a movement that had been going nonstop for the three years previous. You know, it didn't happen by magic, you know. And and um, we found a way to, to build bridges, you know, with other people. You know, other people, were, through that struggle against apartheid, other people were better able to understand even their own struggles through the struggle against apartheid because there were students from other oppressed minorities that were there at Princeton, but there were also white students there who were from working-class families. You know, one of the, the examples of this is that at, at one point, while the anti-apartheid struggle was going, there was also a struggle against J.P. Morgan, um, J.P. Stevens. J.P. Stevens was a textile manufacturer at that time that was, uh, and there was a big strike against J.P. Stevens. And uh, Princeton had some kind of connection to the J.P. Stevens Corporation. And, you know, we actually were able to link that struggle, the, the labor struggle of J.P. Stevens' company, that was going on and link that to the struggle against apartheid. You know, we used to have joint rallies and when we didn't have joint rallies, the students that were working around that would come and support us. And when they would have their JP Stevens rallies, we would go and support them. It, it was one of the best experiences I ever had in my life. And I've been in a lot of struggles. I've been in the movement for almost half a century, 50 years. And I'm telling you, that was one of the best struggles you know, because we were able to unfold how the system really screws everybody. <laughs> you know. Yeah. No, that yeah, that is great then that you're able to do that, like build the broad coalition and show people, you know, how these issues really are connected. For example, it isn't right. just like one thing over here that affects one person and there's no repercussions. You know, all these issues are really entangled on some level. Right. That's absolutely right. So, that, yeah, it's really interesting. So, could you tell us some about some of the, the uh, fights about uh, more geared towards economic justice then that you've been involved in? Right. Well, POP led a 381-day protest. We protested every day at the beginning of the downturn of the economy uh, in 08 uh, to kind of mirror 
what happened in Montgomery. You remember during the Civil Rights Movement, Rosa Parks got arrested and there was a Montgomery bus boycott. That lasted for 381 days. And so being inspired by that, we started a 381-day campaign for jobs, peace, equality, and justice. That's what it was called, the 381-day campaign for jobs, peace, equality, and justice. Uh, Jobs at a living wage, uh, U.S. out of Iraq and Afghanistan, used the money for war, for for housing, health care, education, and jobs, a moratorium on home foreclosure, um, and and uh, free. Even back then, this is as far as 08, we were talking about free college uh, tuition and a host of other economic issues. Uh, Medicare for all, uh, that was part of it also. So we, we kind of pulled all of the struggles the major struggles that were going on, you know, around. There was also a, um, a fight, and there's still a fight going on around uh, home foreclosures. Essex County has one of the highest rates of home foreclosures. New Jersey has one of the highest rates of the 50 states. And I, I just heard the other day, Atlantic County has the highest rate of any count of home foreclosures of any county in the United States. So in that a 381-day campaign, we were also calling for a moratorium on home foreclosures. So we would uh, protest in front of the Essex County Courthouse every day for 381 days. And when we got to the 381st day, we actually decided it was already like October something, and the election of um, of 08 was uh, like a few weeks away. So we just said, hey, We'll just go 400 days. We'll take this right up to election day. And that that was a really big campaign because what we would do, we would ask different organizations, labor unions, churches, student groups, to each pick a day and come down and protest with us. And they did, you know, like Charlie Hall's uh, uh, labor union, the retail uh, workers. Um, oh, nice. Oh, yeah, Charlie Hall's a good guy. Yeah, yeah, he brought his union down a couple of times. Some of the pastors, uh, Bill Howard from um, uh, Bethany Baptist Church, he was the pastor at that time. He's since retired. He brought his whole congregation down. In fact, on the anniversary, the 100th anniversary of their church, their their way of celebrating the 100th anniversary of their church was to come down and protest with us during that 381-day uh, campaign. But that was a that was a major campaign, and um, also recently on April the twenty seventh, we had our second annual demonstration on uh, free college free college tuition and an end to student debt. We had had one last year. The first one was uh, in eighteen in April of uh, two thousand eighteen, and the second one. And this is something we're going to do every year. Uh, number one because it's a it's a just demand, and because students are really being priced out of a decent education, or if they go to college, they end up becoming indentured servants. <laughs> you know, on I mean, God for undergraduates, yeah, yeah. old dollars you you'll be working till you're dead. <laughs> you know, trying to pay off that loan. Um, 
And also yeah, it really is ridiculous that way. Yeah. Like yeah. the way the system and is also, designed because then like Navient, mm-hmm. the Department of Education is like subsidizing these astronomical prices. Right. Right. It's really unjust what's being done and it's it's really, you know, um gonna have a major effect on, on the lives of all of it's already having a major effect. Like they just did a study. The economy is suffering because people aren't buying homes. People aren't buying homes because they're paying off their student loans. I mean, my daughter, I, I have three daughters, all went to college, all graduates of Rutgers University. But the last one that went to college, um, uh, I had to mortgage my house twice, you know, mm. to, 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 to get her through college, you know, and, and ended up ultimately selling the house. But uh, before it was sold, you know, I had to take out all the money I had invested in that home here in Montclair. You know, I had to use it to pay for my daughter's education. People should not have to mortgage their homes to pay for their children's education. It's just wrong. And uh, and more recently also, um, speaking of Charlie Hall, uh, POP went down to, I think that's Pensacola, uh, where the 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 nursing home workers are struggling for decent wages and working conditions, and we we joined the picket line with them. POP pre- frequently, oh I shouldn't say frequently, but periodically we we join picket and when we're invited to, we we will go and join the picket lines of workers that are on strike. When the Verizon workers were on strike uh, in Newark, uh, we picketed with them uh, a number of occasions in different. Uh, buildings when they when Verizon was still in the building on Broad Street, we joined their pickets down there. And when it was up here on, um, I think that's University, the big building on University, we picketed there. So you know we've been involved in struggles uh, for higher wages for working people, for living wages, for an increase in the minimum wage. We we certainly have supported and have participated in demonstrations for fifteen minimum wage and the union. So we've been, we've always tried to link the struggle for racial justice to the struggle for economic justice because we think that's what Dr. King was trying to do at the end of his life. Oh, absolutely. That's why uh, the Reverend Barber, you know, it's great talk about how he's trying to revive the uh, poor people's campaign that's made various strides. Towards that end, you know, largely in his own North Carolina, um, you know, but the movement is growing, and he's like a great speaker. That way, oh, actually, I saw him speak earlier this year. I remember the first time I saw him uh, was when I was a uh, delegate to the Democratic National Convention last year. You know, I was uh, I supported Bernie Sanders, and I was a delegate for Bernie Sanders. Uh, to the Democratic National Convention. And the first time I had ever seen Reverend Barber speak was at the Democratic National Convention. I'm telling you, that made the trip worth going (laughs) because I I was not (laughs) enthused with what happened at the Democratic National Convention. But when I heard William Barber speak and when I was in that packed uh, Wells Fargo Convention Center, uh, when he spoke, that that may, I'm telling you, that made the trip. I said, I'm glad I'm here just for this because everything else, I was disappointed 
but that made the trip. And he's a really, he's a very inspirational leader, um, William Barber, and he's doing the right thing. Somebody got to say something for poor people. You know, uh, a lot of people talk about the middle class, but very few, and, and the middle class should be talked about, and working people should be talked about, but they are like more than 40 million people in this country that are living in abject poverty. I'm talking about below the poverty level. I'm not even talking about the people that are at and just above the poverty level. That might be another 30 million. But there are 40 million people living in abject poverty in this country. And, you know, they don't have many advocates, you know. They don't have many advocates. But I'm glad that uh, Reverend Barber has started the New Poor People's Movement and I have been to some of their meetings, and I have been to uh, some of the demonstrations that they've had. Not just me, but People's Organization for Project. Oh, yeah, that's great, Ben. Yeah, he has made some strides in uh, really building the cause and showing people how this is really needed and linking it you know, to the civil rights movement you know, over the 1960s, led by... Dr. King. So it is interesting to see as, you know, various gains are made. But, you know, that's the thing, you know, like we work towards these issues and it's really difficult, you know, sometimes when you have to fight little issue here, little issue there, whatever is like in the news sometimes. But right. Tell right. us then, like if you, if you were able to like describe a society that you would want to see, tell us about that then. Well, I think that um, <laughs> the society, I, I would like to see the United States um, become more like the Scandinavian countries, like Denmark and Sweden and Norway, where the people have uh, among the highest standard of living, the most liberal uh, in terms of wages and working conditions. They are taxed at a higher level, but their taxes cover you know, things that the people need like health care uh, and education and so on and so forth. I, w- I would like to see us move in that direction. Um, I mean, a shorthand would be to say the U.S. moved towards some type of socialism, but people have so many preconceived notions of socialism. Sometimes I'm almost... Um, reticent about using the word lest I feed into their false concepts of what that actually is. Uh, that's why, like in the Constitution of the People's Organization for Progress, we actually don't call for socialism, but we call for what Dr. King said, uh, radical redistribution of power and wealth and a radical restructuring of our socioeconomic system. Those are the very words that Dr. King used in his book, where do we go from here, chaos or, or community? Uh, I believe it was in the chapter, chapter six on the world house, called the world house. But um, we have the greatest uh, amount of inequality in this country, in the history of humanity. There's never been a gap as wide between the rich and the poor, as there is between the top 
fraction of 1% that holds most of the wealth in this country and the lower half of the population, some 170 million people. You know, it's crazy that, that three men in the United States could have more wealth than the lower half of the population, which would be like about 170 million people in the United States. We have just so we have we have 330 million people in the United States, but three men have. So we need to close the inequality gap in this country, and of course, the most outstanding is the gap between the rich and the poor. But there are other gaps, you know, even within the working class, there are disparities in wages between what women make and men make, between what white working people make and what black working people make and Hispanic people and so on and so forth. So all these gaps need to be closed, you know, and we need to work toward a society where people really are empowered. You know, we, we, we need a radical change in our political system. You know, uh, recently uh, the word oligopoly has come into into the public discourse, but this country has been, you know, uh, ruled by an oligopoly uh, for for decades. <laughs> you know, it's just now that, you know, we're at a point where the, the inequality is so great that people can no longer ignore it or, you know, find difficulty in trying, even trying to argue with it. You know, the disparities are so great. You know, I, I can remember when I was a student at Prince University, like in 1974, and I was reading Monopoly Capital by Barron and Sweezy, you know, they, he would, they weren't even talking about oligopoly. They were talking about monopoly, you know, which is even worse. But the bottom line is we live in a plutocracy where the rich rule and recent decisions like, uh, what was that, Citizens United? Was that it? Uh, the, the court decision, yeah. Supreme Court decision. You know, now the wealthy, there are no breaks, no barriers. They can give unlimited amounts of money to candidates, you know. So it, it, it's an even more distressing situation. So we, we need a major change. You know, this country is rich enough. We shouldn't have poor people in this country. We shouldn't have homeless people in this country. We shouldn't have people living on the streets. You know, it's too much wealth in this country. And and we have now, within our means, we have the technology. We have the ability. What we lack is the political will. But we have the technology. We have the the, uh, administrative and organizational abilities to eliminate a lot of these social ills. But what we don't have, what working and poor people don't have, is the political power in their hands to actually make the change. But they're hopeful signs. You know, I think um, Bernie Sanders' campaign was a hopeful sign, you know, uh, for the first time. I can remember when people, when I was a student at Princeton, you have to whisper the word socialism. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, I'm serious. I'm serious. You know, you, you you would have to be a pretty bold fellow to stand up in a political science class and say, I'm a socialist, you know, because you were setting yourself up for a bad grade if you did it, you know. But now, <laughs> you know, because of Bernie's campaign in 16, 
he's he's opened the door to the discussion. And, and look at now. The campaign is already, the debate was tonight, the first round of Democratic primary debates. And, um, you know, people, I can, let me tell you something. I can, I can tell you when P.O.P. in 1990, when we were talking about, when we were, at, at protests and demonstrations and meetings with other groups talking about Medicare for all, I was physically accosted by an elected official in 1990 because I dared to say in a, in a kind of regular meeting of regular, you know, of, of elected officials that I dared to say that we needed Medicare for all. This person jumped up, uh, told me don't talk that commie pinko shit around him, you know, and <laughs> grab, grab me by my lapel, my suit jacket lapel, because he worked for an insurance company. I don't know if he was working <laughs> for him at that moment, but he had been, he had been, I believe he had been an employee of a credential insurance company at one time. And so now, you know, I turn on the presidential debate, and and half of the people up there said, there for some kind of either Medicare for all or universal health care. You know, I, I've lived long enough to see something go from literally the margins to the epicenter of political discourse, you know. And so these are, these are hopeful signs. It's not the real change that we're looking for, but it, it's a sign that the ice is thawing, and I think we need to take advantage of it as much as we can right now to keep that door open and to even widen it, you know, because the tendency when there, when there's social upheaval in society, there's like a push forward, right? Like just take the civil rights movement as an example, push forward in the sixties, civil rights act, voting rights act, higher education act, housing act, all of those bills that, you know, did, bring some modicum of uh, social justice to people. But every time you have this push forward, you always have reaction and push back. So now we are pushing forward with with social justice and economic justice in a, in a way that we haven't in the past. People talking about jobs at a living wage. That actually was mentioned tonight during the debate. Jobs at a living wage, free college. Medicare for all, all these things were mentioned in the debate tonight. But what's going to happen after the election is over in 2020, the forces of reaction inside and outside of the Democratic Party, not to mention the, the way out Republican Party, the, the cult party, as I call it, the cult of Trump party, as I call it right now. Mm. These forces, These forces are going to push back. So we have to be prepared. You know, when they really make their push back, we have to fight to stand our ground and, 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 and not slip back into the neoliberal environment we were in in 2008 to 2012, where people, what I mean by neoliberal is that people talk, you know, social justice and equality, but they actually do, do something else. You understand what I'm saying? They're like, progressive in form, but really conservative in essence. 
and, and that's really how I see like neoliberalism. They talk the talk, you know, equality for racial equality and women's equality and you know, a better deal for workers and so on and so forth. They talk that and meanwhile they they pass laws that are antithetical and policies that are antithetical to that. So, you know, we have to take advantage of this um this loosening of the of the of the this fluidity of the political environment, you know, and try to gain as much ground as we can before the pushback comes and then try to stave them off, hold hold them off when they do push back. Yeah, it's always important then to understand that one you're able to gain make gains, but then that there is gonna be that reaction, for example. Right. But it's really interesting, you know, you bring it up, the term like neoliberalism, which is almost like so pervasive that it's unnamed, and then you tell people, oh, neoliberalism, oh, well, I'm a liberal, that sounds good. Like, no, but like, it's just like a strange term. Right, right. That's why I try a lot of times not to even use those terms, because it conjures up images other than the images you actually want to conjure up into people's minds. It usually conjure up images that have more to do with the popular narrative than the truth, you know, of of a situation. But, you know, that's that's what we had, you know. We had this neoliberal environment. We had a black president, the first time in the history of the United States, and I voted for him. I voted for Obama in 08, and I voted for him again, again in 12. But, I mean, he really didn't take advantage of those first two years when the Democrats had control of both houses of Congress and and people were telling him. It wasn't even like people, like this was some kind of secret or this took people by surprise. People knew a reaction. There was going to be a backlash to his election. There were all kinds of articles that people were writing in the Times, the Washington Post, Atlantic Magazine, and others that whatever Obama was going to do, he needed to do in these next two years because there was a backlash, and that's exactly what happened. And the Democrats lost control of the House and the Senate, and then we lost the election, or we could say the election was stolen either way. <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a Democrat in there now. It's, it's Trump, you know, a, a fascist or at at least the neo-fascists that's in there now, and we've lost the Supreme Court. I mean, not that we had it, because, you know, Mitch McConnell wouldn't even give um, Merrick Garland a hearing because they did not want a liberal majority on the Supreme Court. And you see the damage that that court is doing, has been doing every day, you know, starting with the Citizens United, which we mentioned a few a few minutes ago, but, um, you know, and we have an opportunity, I think, to, to move in a direction where the, the country was kind of like in uh, during the Roosevelt administration. You know, that's why the, the environmental policy that, that, that the left is putting forward, and I say that in the broadest sense, the Green New Deal has the word New Deal in it because that harkens to the New Deal 
uh, that folks got under uh, Roosevelt, you know, and, and to pull people out of the the uh, depression of the 30s. We're in a, we're in a kind of parallel situation now, and we we need to really take advantage of it and try to push this thing in as progressive as direction possible, you know, uh, for the election of 2020 and beyond, and beyond. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's like the thing is that so many people thought, like, Obama was going to be Roosevelt, and then it seems it was squandered either because his advisors were trying to win, like, swing voters who couldn't be won over. Right. Or right. maybe they had more insidious uh, motives that way. But now, so now it looks like maybe Obama was more like Woodrow Wilson, who, you know, in the 1910s <laughs> was kind of like, um, like, did some progressive stuff, was all right on some level, not others, not others at all. Right. But then, like, you know, right. he in part, that era, you know, helped inspired like FDR, and he himself, you know, worked in the Wilson administration. Uh, and then, like, Roosevelt was able to really bring to fruition, like, these policies that people had wanted for a while on a lot of fronts. Right. You know, not right. only for, like, that would be, healing. Hmm? And, and that was because people, Roosevelt was being pushed from below. There was a really burgeoning um, union movement, trade union movement, particularly in the industrial uh, sectors, uh, the CIO you know, um, and, and other movements. There were a lot of mass movement going on pushing Roosevelt as well as, you know, his own leadership going in that in that direction. Oh, yeah, that's absolutely true. I think that's, like, one of the things that we kind of lose, like, in, like, the, like, the regular history books that, like, kind of, like, skims over the details that way. Like, the sheer nature of the movement that you need to, like, push a president to action that way. Even when times are bad, you know, you still need that movement to push them. You still need the right. people in the trenches protesting. You know, and the people that protest like that, they're not going to be the people that are moderate and want to compromise. You know, those are the people that want, you know, what they want and they're willing to go towards the lengths necessary to get them. That's right. That's absolutely And that's right. what gets you like a Roosevelt in a new deal. So... You know, we'll see what happens with the Green New Deal. You know, I really, you know, it's this kind of thing, you know, we really need it. And, like, now we have to argue to get money for, like, the Gateway Tunnel. And we have to argue for money for schools. So this really isn't even, like, the regular capitalism of, you know, Adam Smith of, like, the 1700s, 1900s. You know, so that's why, like, instead of the term neoliberal, I like the term hypercapitalism that way. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Writing about that and the mm-hmm. nature of how it like, infects all these things, you know, like it perpetuates this, you know, racial injustice, this economic injustice, these horrors upon people that we need to fight against. The, you know, the term right. to say, like, oh, what we're in favor of, you know, the socialism term is becoming really popular now, but then, you know, it is, you know, for some people, it is that the scariest socialism, you know, that brings to mind, you know, Stalin's gulags or Chairman Mao right. and his red book and right, right. you know like legions that way, which is like completely ridiculous compared to like other things when you have like oh yeah like so like you have like Sweden then would be a Scandinavian country with social democratic principles. You know they right. still produce Volvos 
and Swedish fish and Ikea. People should be making money off those things. And and on that note, we're going to have to start wrapping up today's uh, adventure. Uh, This was a phenomenally interesting uh, episode, and I'd like to see it continue. Larry, you're welcome back whenever you'd like. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Tap into what you're doing. How can they learn more about you and all the things that you're involved with? Right. Well, um, one one way would be uh, the People's Organization for Progress. We meet every Thursday at the Abyssinian Baptist Church in Newark. Every Thursday at 6.30, Abyssinian Baptist Church is at 224 West Kenny Street in Newark, New Jersey. We meet every Thursday. Our meetings are open, so people are, are, who want to work on some of these things we're working on are welcome to attend. Uh, you can go to the POP website, um, which is um, www.njpop.org. You can go to the website. Or if you go on Facebook, uh, there's, there's the People's Organization for Progress Facebook page. People can go to my Facebook page. My, my, fa- my Facebook page probably is more up-to-date. <laughs> and our website, uh, uh, unfortunately, but under Lawrence Ham, uh, Lawrence Ham uh, on Facebook, um, and people can call to find out what what we're doing at the moment. They can call the People's Organization for Progress at nine seven three eight zero one zero 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 one nine seven three eight zero one zero 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 one. So, just to, just to finish up, uh, People's Organization for Progress. We protest every Monday against police brutality. We have a vigil in front of the federal building in Newark. Uh, that's 970 Broad Street every Monday from about 4.30 to 6 o'clock. We have been there for 177 Mondays. Wow. Uh, demand, yes, demanding uh, civil rights investigations into the deaths of people killed by police here in New Jersey. We meet every Thursday, I just mentioned that, and every Saturday uh, during the warm months, which is now, we do voter registration on Broad Market in Newark, New Jersey from about 3, 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. on Saturdays. Uh, we, we call the Monday protest Justice Monday, and we call the Saturday voter registration Empowerment Saturdays. <laughs> so, you know, so we're... We're out there, you know, every week we're out and, and, you know, and then we have periodic activities like in terms of coming up, what's coming up, we have um, our annual observance of the Newark Rebellion of 1967. We've been observing that since the founding of the People's Organization for Progress. That will be July 12th at 4.30. Uh, we will meet at the monument. There's a small, very small monument to the people who died during the rebellion um, at the intersection of uh, um, Springfield Avenue and 15th Avenue. That's coming up in uh, in July. And then on September 21st, we're going to have an impeach Trump march, which will actually be our third since Trump was elected, will be the third impeach Trump march. We we. The year he was elected, we marched against Trump. But that's going to be October 21st. 
So a lot, lot going on. So just give us a call. If you want to know what's happening, just give us a call at 973-801-0001. Very awesome. I posted a link to your Facebook page, to the uh, People's Organization for Progress website, and to the People's Organization for Pro- uh, Progress uh, Facebook page as well. And I will share uh, the posts of your upcoming event. Thank you so very you. much. I look forward to uh, you. hearing you speak again. You're very inspiring and very informed. And Dan, it's always a pleasure. Uh, thank you very much and for the AWA as well. Oh, you're very welcome, Hercules. Okay, we're going right. to play Take care, fellas. you too called Cauldron Born, and then we'll be back with our Athenaeum and Bill Waitman. Seven 
his hands tracing the lines searching for patterns and looking for signs your life a construction one day you will see through the illusion and into the dream the cauldron's brew and magic she will give to you. You will dance in the eye of the storm, your Kerridwen's children, the cauldron born. has grown beyond its archaic royal and religious roots 
to meet the ever-changing needs of humanity's unfolding development. Libraries continue to serve as vital cultural hubs of learning and leisure in our local communities and in our emerging global culture in the virtual world online. Some of our Age of Heroes initiatives, most notably the Mythic Adventure Program and our Career Center, have been hosted by libraries, as have many of our workshops and cultural study groups. Our Athenaeum show will focus on the reinvention of local libraries and other community-based learning centers in this age of information. And I can think of no better guest uh, to have uh, launch this initiative than Bill Waitman, who uh, is a legend uh, in the field of workforce development. He has compiled and organized and shared much of the information upon which uh, many of our current endeavors are based. Uh, And he has been like a prophet crying in the wilderness about uh, how the coming of AI uh, will affect us in the very near future. So welcome, Bill. How are you? I'm doing very good. Thank you. Uh, It's a good night, and I'm glad that you asked me to come on. Yes, I'm looking forward to our AI show, which will be launching very soon, where we can deal with this topic in depth. But it's a paradoxical uh, topic because um, the world is embracing uh, all of this progress and uh, the AI and the library initiatives I'm uh, uh, supporting also uh, embrace and encourage uh, robotics and artificial intelligence and coding Um, But I agree with you that this hasn't really been thought out very well, and the impact of AI will be very great, and it's already affecting us. And uh, I've been following your um, thoughts on this very closely, because you are. You're a pioneer in very many areas, and uh, you're an awesome individual and very visionary. Uh, So I would like to cover that aspect of uh, AI Um, here on uh, the Elysium Project and on our other shows. So why the cause for concern? Well, I think AI has a a great chance of eliminating a lot of jobs on the world stage and in our country in particular. Can I give you one example that I uh, actually I got out of MIT today? Uh, A lady had a research project. She wanted to study the job of a mold maker. In my lifetime, I've actually developed apprenticeships for a mold maker. But as she got into the project and she started using some techniques uh, like a 3D computer, is that right? Um, a 3D right. printer. 3D printer. She could make the product that this man spent hours and hours and hours on. So in, in essentially, uh, in her little uh, discussion, and it's, it's in this month's MIT journal, uh, which is an excellent journal to read about I, uh, AI, uh, this job was eliminated. And so much is going to dramatically change. I mean, I could just – let me give you an example. We're talking about politics. Right now, right. Taiwan is doing a study on participatory, uh, uh, participant lawmaking. And they're using artificial intelligence to push it through. So they're actually presenting somewhat like China does. They're presenting ideas into Taiwan and to get people to support those ideas. So our world of politics may change dramatically, and we we, we don't consider that. Uh, We have way too many lobbyists to begin with, but we don't know where this is going to go. 
you and I are familiar, and, and many of your people listening are familiar with um, uh, car uh, car play, uh, like um, people that pick up you in a pick you up in a car. Right. Well, that's going to dramatically change in the next ten, fifteen years. There's a new company coming on the rise, and we do, and uh, it will do everything uh, different. It will even actually might even have a Starbucks or Burger King installed in your vehicle, so that you could. You're wow. sitting there. You're getting driven, and it will replace both Lyft and Uber uh, on the coming scene. So that's a lot of jobs. That's jobs out there. I don't know how these people are, are going to compete. Just imagine this, Hercules. Climate change. We know that carbon dioxide is in our atmosphere, but do we realize that uh, we may have the technology or so to remove carbon dioxide out of our uh, atmosphere? and maybe turn around some of the pollution that's going on. It's, it's still years away, but they think it's a possibility. So what you dream can actually happen. Uh, right. There's other things happening. Uh, gene, gene editing will, order the, will alter the human race, and that's a possibility more and more every day. Uh, there have already been some examples on the world, of world stage, even producing some sort of human uh, – human um, uh, mechanism or body or whatever. We, uh, I think it's, al- it's disallowed at this time. I don't know how good or bad that is, but it's, it's a whole new world of thinking. And we know that, uh, you know, um, within the next four years, we're now in 2020. This was one of the years of takeoff. Uh, there would be, um, uh, we, we're expecting it locally in this country, 40 maybe 80 million jobs being eliminated on our, yes. on our national level and across the ponds, uh, China and whatever, 800 million or more jobs would be eliminated. So that's a frightening number. Some people say, no, it'll never happen. It'll create other jobs. Uh, people will be connected to uh, uh, whatever. But uh, there's a belief on the rising that these robotic uh, trends and uh, whatever – they have all the skills now to, in a way to replace us if yes, that was even possible. I mean, it makes the Twilight Zone seem, uh, you know, distant, but the Twilight Zone wasn't all that far off. Uh, no, it wasn't. It seemingly becoming more possible. possible. And it, it, it's, it's in every industry, every industry without a doubt, the medical industry, uh, pharmaceuticals, uh, they'll be able to do – there's estimates now that they will be able to do – um, well, they'll be able to do uh, develop pills for rare diseases, um, and it, and it goes on. Uh, I don't, I'm not a fan of this, but I'm reading that they will replace meat without the cow. <laughs> you know, I don't know what. Uh, I've heard of you know, that too. Taste. I brought up on that. That's a, that is uh, both exciting and scary. <laughs> it is scary. Everything is. Re- if we're not too careful, you know the. Uh, the fight of the robots can take us over and they get all these things together. And, you know, one of the things that, um, that really bothers me, we talked last week about STEM. It's not only yeah. STEM, it's uh, the science, technology, uh, e, e, give me an E, uh, whatever, uh, engineering and math. Uh, engineering uh, and, yes, and mathematics. Uh, our engineering uh, population is shrinking. We're not producing the students for these kinds of fields. And I don't want to, you know, when the space race happened when we were little kids, 
and that all came to fruition with the uh, uh, CNN now is showing almost every other night the uh, landing on the moon. Um, kids in science increased at a college level and at a Ph.D. level, and that's not really happening. Uh, I talked about females and males with you last week. Fifty-three percent of all college graduates are now uh, female. But when you look right. at uh, things like STEM and uh, artificial intelligence, it's the, the proportion drops immediately. And the pro- proportion also drops, not to be uh, xenophobic, but we're sending a lot of kids from other countries to our country for engineering. And a lot of our kids are going for social work. That, that's a great field. And so, you know, maybe teaching, and that's a great field. But we're not capturing the best and the brightest for a field that would have spawned, uh, you know, space races years ago. And we're deeply behind in this. I mean, China is uh, China's going to build its own space station in within the next two to three years. And space is going to be a new horizon to them and for us. And we've got to play catch up. We had the Sputnik craze, and you know, and what I guess it was 1957. Now we're facing more challenges, and we need to upgrade the amount of kids going into science, technology, engineering, math, uh, artificial intelligence, and all of it. It's great. You're in a town, Tennessee, that has great programs for kids, and many uh, in STEM. And many school districts do have these programs, uh, but it's not enough. We've got to push, right. push the envelope and get kids to switch. Uh, and not everybody has to be a social worker or, or whatever. We need to bring back the fact that these occupations in STEM and artificial intelligence offer a lot of great rewards, including great pay, and uh, which is probably about 20, 20 to 30% higher than the average pay of the other occupations. Coding, as, as you just mentioned, is going to probably disappear uh, because we're in the third phase of artificial intelligence and uh, where these machines, uh, machine learning, they can do their own stuff. So it's not so, I don't know, I don't know if the twilight zone can be reached, but it's not so impossible that people can learn these tasks and do them. And that's where right. we, we need to get our focus in your library settings and schools, we need to bring back science into the classroom. It's not for everybody, science and math and the other things that go along with it. I mean, I, I got to be honest with you, uh, until I bought a great statistics program, I didn't realize the value of statistics. And when I did, I, uh, it changed my life. I mean, I was doing surveys. Uh, I wasn't getting paid for them because I was getting my government salary. But sitting home and doing a salary of uh, 4,000 uh, AFL-CIO members on their uh, health insurance uh, choices or, or, you know, or doing a survey for the New Jersey Business and Industry Association, that was 19,000 uh, companies. And, uh, you know, it was rewarding. It gave me time to find a place, a niche, uh, niche like, a li- like a library where I could sit down and put the data into uh, a tablet or a computer and then go analyze it with a, uh, a statistics program that I got out of uh, New Mexico. And I think uh-huh. that's more and more what's going to happen. I think that we need to harness the Italian talents of the young, keep STEM in the classroom, uh, keep the other things along with it, increase science funding uh, for all kids at all levels. I think that uh, we're leaving a lot of kids behind in urban areas, 
my wife taught in Newark, and she was able to uh, get kids up. Uh, not only learn, but she had them learn three languages uh, in kindergarten and had six kids skip to the third grade. It's not impossible, but she found the work, the work ethic to do that. And she found uh-huh. ways to teach math. And uh, uh, there's a lot of things that are going in in urban schools. Uh, part of the problem, too, is that charter schools are taking too much of the money and uh, we're rec- 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 creating a elitist system. People will disagree with that. But I think all kids have the possibility to learn. And uh, if they could make a decent wage and compete in the future, it would be worthwhile. So I, I know I'm babbling along here, but no, I really no, no. feel hard. You're very well uh, um, immersed in this topic because you've researched it thoroughly. And you've been in workforce development for decades, so you see very clearly. Uh, so you're not babbling on. You're sharing uh, uh, your insights and your experience. That's very welcome because uh, uh, we need to take action quickly, as you keep pointing out. Uh, so I'm certainly benefiting from listening to you, and I'm sure our listeners are as well. It's so inc- – this is the new space, uh, space age uh, competition. We're competing against China and other nations, and we're educating students from China. I don't have any problem with educating Chinese students. Uh, I would prefer to give Chinese students in the United States the break and give them the chance for the jobs, uh, whether they, and same with Russian or other countries that come here. We've got to get our, our, our native population that grows up here, white, black, brown, Asian, whatever, uh, to get into these courses and realize the consequence they can have uh, on their, uh, uh, you know, we, we have India beating us on, on their turf in a lot of occupations. And China is doing, this, is doing the same. And they will, as I said, they will make a big uh, launch into space sometime this year or next year with a space station of their own. And, uh, and then it gets into other areas, you know, like uh, warfare and everything else. Hopefully we can come to an era of, uh, uh, of peace. But when you yes. consider that companies like Lyft will be gone. They they are out. They will be outdated. There will be totally free uh, driverless cars. Not only that, Hercules, there'll be driverless trucks. Will change, yes. which will no, which will eliminate a lot of truck drivers. Yes. And that technology is right here now. That's why I worry. Yes. I worry about the people that are going to be passed up. And what do we do? I mean, there's. Uh, yeah, there are prospects of, uh, you know, income for conservative communists proposed an income uh, guarantee program. But it goes mo- more than that. We really have to use everybody in our economy. It's like that saying no child behind, but we, we tended to leave a lot of children behind. Yes. Now we need to use everybody because the numbers that we have going into these programs are not competitive on the world stage. I'm talking about males, females, blacks, whites, Hispanics. Uh, Chinese American, Asian American, um, we need to have. Uh, we're, we're pitiful in some ways, and some. And some. Uh, maybe I'm going to give you an estimate. I think there are 200,000 students of Chinese background in the United States study art, studying artificial intelligence on a doctoral level and on a bachelor's level. We got to keep. I've got to promote kids from Chinese kids from here, uh, or at least get our kids into the colleges. Not being ethnocentric or anything aligned. I want everybody to push forward. 
because this is a race we cannot lose. It's really that serious. Uh, you remember when we were doing the space race in the 60s and the 70s, I don't know if it was Fosco or Ovaltine, which was, uh, you know, some of the products were taking credit uh, that they benefited from the space race. No, more than ever, this is true. I mean, the 3D printer is something that came out of our technology. And we've right. got to leap forward. We're falling behind in, um, in uh, oh, God, uh, to-do projects where you get a grant or an honorary, a plate, or whatever it is, we're falling behind in getting our scientific research out there. Other countries are picking us us apart, and they're benefiting from us. Science does mean it is a a profession. It's something that can leapfrog a nation ahead. I'll give you an example. Estonia, uh, I I had met the kids uh, in Leonia High School, who went to Estonia to become its president, and he brought computer technology to that tiny, ball, I guess it's a Baltic country, and they were one of the top uh, computer countries in all of Europe. And, you know, their populations, it's like a city-state. Uh, you know, uh, the Russians jammed them, the Koreans jammed them. I don't know if it was the Koreans, but, uh, you know, maybe the Chinese. But it, it, it shows what a little country can do to show its strength or flex its strength. And that's what we need in every industry. We can, Things are going to change dramatically. We're going away. The first thing that changed artificial intelligence was the development of an arm. I don't know. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, yes. They, they have affected that uh, computer arm that's used in robotics. And uh, one source says once you do that, you really have taken over all intelligence because these and- things can then be t- do anything, and uh, on, it's coming. On that note, uh, we're, our half hour is almost up. We will continue with this in its own show. Uh, Bill, I have a library that I'm associated with that is very progressive and is trying to prepare uh, our kids for uh, the things that you mentioned for STEM, and uh, um, I also have started an initiative with uh, Star Trek uh, clubs, because Star Trek gave us a vision of moving past where we currently are and uh, embracing our differences and doing things as a, as a human race. Uh, so I'm working with them. Uh, I would love to work with you. I'm putting together a program. We can launch it in the library and then replicate it uh, to uh, address the things that uh, you're sharing with us because uh, they are causes of concern. And we are at a marvelous point in history where our decisions will either uh, bless us or damn us in the future. So uh, I agree with you. We have to take action and we have to take it now. And uh, we have to ensure a better future uh, for everybody, ideally, but for people in this country, um, you know, realistically. You're right, 100%. And I would be glad to join you. Uh, I'm still in the state of Florida. The red tide is back. Uh, I've got it a second time. (laughs) I'll be back up there. I had enough. (laughs) I'll be back up there uh, before the 5th. So, uh, you know, we'll get in touch. We will. Happy 4th. Enjoy the rest of your vacation. And I look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks. We'll get together for coffee. Thank you so much, Hercules, for having me on tonight. And thank you, Bill, and thanks to all listeners for uh, being with us. I wish everybody a happy Independence Day, 
And uh, until next time, this is Bill and Hercules wishing you joyous journeys and awesome adventures. Thanks for listening to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network. Join us seven nights a week for exciting programming covering a variety of expressions of faith. And remember, all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. Thank you.